Welcome back to eConversations with Nave, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. On this episode, Nave Vice President and Managing Director and Chief U.S. Economist for Morgan Stanley, Ellen Zentner, sits down with Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond President and CEO Tom Barkin to discuss all things monetary policy. Ellen, take it away. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. Um, really excited today to um, that NAVE is hosting uh, President Tom Barkin from the Richmond Fed um, for a conversation on the outlook for the economy and monetary policy. Um, I'm the best vice president of NAVE this year. Um, you heard Caitlin introduce our e-conversations that Julia Coronado, the president, and I have. And let me tell you, it's a huge amount of fun um, from an economist perspective, we have a low bar for what we think is really fun, um, but it's a great it's a great podcast that we do um, after every uh, payroll uh, Friday, um, and we talk about uh, what transpired um, on that following Monday. So let me introduce um, uh, Tom before we get started with today's conversation. Um, so in 2018, Tom Barkin became the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, and he serves on the Federal Open Market Committee. Um, for those of you not familiar with his district um, coverage area, it's South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, DC, West Virginia, and Maryland. Um, and he has uh, uh, sort of roots in his practice in the South because prior to joining the Richmond Fed, he was a senior partner and CFO at McKinsey and Company, where he also oversaw McKinsey's offices in the Southern uh, United States. Um, so. I'm going to have a conversation with Tom today, again, about the outlook for monetary policy and the economy. Um, and so, Tom, um, let's get started here. And, and first, I want to say, uh, Caitlin showed our photos um, on the introduction page. And I don't know about you, but mine looks a hell of a lot better <laughs> than I do today. I must have taken that photo a decade ago. I, I believe I ate a lot during COVID. That may be part of my problem. <laughs> All right. Well, um, you know, I wanted to start off today because I'm sure it's at top of mind for everyone, sort of the elephant in the room. Um, you know, the the decision at, at the last Fed meeting seemed between, um, uh, you know, uh, pausing um, or doing another 25 basis point hike. Um, can you talk us through your perspective on the decision at that time? Yeah, so I'll talk for myself. Uh, I believe we're in restrictive territory. Um, I believe there's a lot of uncertainty about um, where exactly rates need to go and how long they work on the economy. You know, long and variable lags are truly long and variable. And so uh, I've tried to articulate a path that is a shallow path for rates that responds when inflation's high. And uh, I think that underlines, uh, if you do respond, let's say at a 25 basis point level, when you've got inflation higher than you want, that sends a message of your commitment to inflation. Um, because there's uncertainty at what point you will have done enough, it also reduces the cost of any uh, particular overshooting. And so uh, where we were last time was inflation was still high. Um, there were questions uh, coming out of the Silicon Valley Bank thing about the impact of the banking situation on the economy. That seemed at that time to have settled. Of course, I think First Republic happened the next week or the next weekend. And, um, and so it seemed with you know, high inflation, uh, to make sense to continue to uh, move rates up gradually. And so that's what we did. That's what we did. And that's what I supported that. Um, I'll also say uh, a lot of uncertainty on the horizon coming out of that meeting. Um, 
multiple data reads we were going to get in the six to seven weeks after the meeting, a debt ceiling, lots of uncertainty around that, and uh, a sense that we'd learn a lot more uh, about the impact of uh, rates on the economy. And so I was also supportive of taking away the notion that we were on a, a preset uh, march toward ever increasing rates and say, no, we're going to turn it more to be around data dependence. And so I think the forward guidance then shifted in the meeting as well. Yeah, so in terms of, of data dependence, then, you know, um, so we're coming up on the uh, blackout period, I think starts this weekend, um, yes. Saturday, doesn't that seem like it's very, very soon, um, right after we get another jobs print, um, we have another inflation print, I mean, walk us through sort of the, what are you looking at specifically in terms of the data dependency to make a decision at this next meeting, what are sort of your I don't know, pain threshold is not the right word. Maybe it is for markets. What would be sort of the, the threshold you would be looking for that would tell you things are or aren't moving in the right direction? So, so here's how I think about it. Um, I think if you want to bring inflation down, you've got to convince yourself. You got to have a story about why that's going to happen. And we've, uh, uh, and we've collectively, uh, media commentators, economists, had multiple stories over the last couple of years. There was the transitory story that would have suggested that uh, this was about the reopening of the economy. And once we got to the reopening, this was gonna go away. Um, the supply chain and uh, commodity price story that said uh, a lot of inflation was being driven by these supply constraints. Um, and as uh, they eased, inflation would come down. And, and they have eased um, and inflation has come down, though not nearly back to where it was. Um, there was what you might call the shock and awe story. The Fed would move extremely aggressively on rates, which we did last year, and that would uh, get inflation expectations uh, in line, and that would bring inflation down. And, and if you look at market measures of uh, inflation expectations, they do look very much in line. But again, inflation hasn't yet uh, followed. Um, where I am is I, I believe you need to uh, bring inflation down by bringing demand down. And so I'm looking at those signs that demand is coming down and that inflation's coming down. And uh, I think to be clear, it's a very plausible story that uh, the impact of rate increases, uh, which work with the lag, uh, tightening credit conditions, which certainly seems to be uh, happening and have an effect, uh, the waning of fiscal stimulus, the erosion of uh, consumer balance sheets, that all those things would bring demand down and with that bring inflation down. That's what I'm trying to look for, for evidence. And so obviously we're gonna see uh, a couple uh, big pieces of data on the employment market this week, uh, jolts tomorrow, the jobs report on Friday. We'll get the May CPI uh, right before our meeting, which will give us more real-time information on what's happening to uh, inflation. And, and as I said, I'm looking to be convinced that demand is in fact coming down and that that will then start to bring uh, inflation down. That's what I'm looking for. All right, so, so, so essentially you would, you would maybe characterize it as sort of the onus is on the data, um, squarely on the data to let you know what else to do. I mean, because this is, seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of some of the debate within the FOMC is um, forward guidance or no forward guidance. Um, and um, is that how you would describe sort of the, the debate within the room? You know, is it, is it truly that we are solely data dependent or how much do we want to rely on say the lagged effects of monetary policy or the unknown impacts of, of prior credit tightening or the extent of credit tightening to sort of guide 
provide forward guidance uh, on future. Yeah. Yeah, I'll speak for myself. I, I um, you know, I, I do believe uh, rate increases have an impact. I do believe they work with the lag, um, but it's awfully hard to convince myself that I can count on them um, to do all the work for me in a world where, and you know this well, uh, our start has a very wide confidence interval. Um, the uh, the evidence of the rates working with the lag is colored by lots of individual circumstances and most of the the past episodes we've had here. And so it, it's hard to actually just drive it into a formula. And that's why I think paying, to, paying attention to the data helps a lot, either that you gain confidence that we're actually headed in the right uh, direction, or you start to wonder uh, whether the setting you've got is not quite the right setting. So um, uh, data dependent data matters. And so I think that is data dependence, but you have to do it in the context of whatever your framework is for thinking. That's why I tried to lay out mine, which is I think we're going to need demand to settle to bring inflation down. And I'm looking for evidence that demand is starting uh, to settle and or that inflation is starting to come down. Out, so so you um, really have your finger on the pulse of the of the fifth district and what's going mm -hmm. on, not just among businesses, but households in your district. Are you seeing any signs of cooling demand in your specific district? I mean, what sort of evidence have you been gathering? Well, and I, I've been out. I was in uh, Eastern North Carolina two weeks ago for the week. I was in uh, Southern West Virginia all last week. And wherever I go, I try to do roundtables with small businesses and bigger businesses and try to uh, ask what's uh, what they're seeing in their, in their uh, segments. You have to disaggregate it and then re-aggregate it by segment. And so, of course, there are some segments that are very cool. Commercial real estate is very cool. Housing uh, has cooled a lot, uh, as you'd expect. Um, I think manufacturing has come down from its peak. That's, um, depending on who you talk to, you'll hear that as cooling, but you might also hear that as normalization. Um, the banking sector, uh, you know, uh, folks have really started to focus now on the margin implications of uh, uh, their efforts to maintain deposits. And, and that's having an impact, you know, uh, both in their businesses themselves uh, and on the margin. Um, consumer goods, uh, if you talk to both retailers and consumer goods manufacturers, I think they're starting to see prices have come up a lot in those sectors. They're seeing volume declines and they're starting to see that uh, erode. So I'd say all that, you know, feels to me like it's cooling. Obviously, or maybe not, you know, if you're talking to anyone who's in the luxury goods sector, they don't see the same cooling. A travel, uh, you know, I was in the airport this weekend. I hope you weren't. Um, but if you were, you would have seen there's no decline in the demand for uh, travel. And so I'd say the stuff that's being supported by the wealthier half of Americans still feels very, uh, very vibrant. Yeah. Um, and, then there, and then there are other sectors, you know, auto would be a good example where you would expect that it would have cooled because interest costs have come up. And in fact, you know, sales aren't where they uh, should be. Uh, at least historically, but the supply chain stuff's still happening there. And so there's still sectors where you still have supply issues, which is keeping things tight, even though uh, if you want to call it underlying demand is not as strong as it might otherwise be. Yeah. And I think your point on, on motor vehicles is really um, important because it's true, right? The labor market is slowing. You think people have less need for vehicles, less miles driven, but there is still a big shortfall in motor vehicle mm -hmm. 
um, supply. And, you know, as, as um, someone that does inflation forecasting, right, motor vehicles, one of those frustrating areas where it's been difficult to anticipate mm -hmm. changes in motor vehicle prices, you're talking about the what seems like insatiable demand, at least among the wealthy, for we want what we want. We want luxury travel. They want um, services. And, and that also is still having some upward pressure on those parts of, of inflation. But I want to go back to something that you said about um, some other demand for goods in your district where prices have risen a lot and you've seen some slowdown in demand there. So would that suggest to you that sort of pricing power is not just unlimited for, for some companies, right? Mm -hmm. That there is sort of a limit of, of uh, price increases that households, uh, a limit to that that households will tolerate. How are you thinking about that playing into sort of your outlook for inflation? Well, pricing power is definitely not uh, unlimited, uh, or I guess you could keep increasing price. You only got one customer left and then, you know, see what the business model is. But, but I will say that um, there's a bunch of, and, and consumer goods manufacturers are the best group to look at on this for years and years and years and years and years, they couldn't increase price. And that was whatever combination of uh, uh, embedded expectations or the power of big box retailers or the risk of, uh, business going to private label or overseas um, uh, or the power of e-commerce, all of these things was keep, were keeping prices very much set. And in the context of the supply shortages and the demand escalation that we had a couple of years ago, they all rediscovered that they could raise price. And the, if you're a business, the great thing about raising prices, the money flows straight to the bottom line as long as you don't lose customers. And so it's an incredibly effective a profit enhancement tool and people used it and they used it because their costs were going up and they used it because they could. Um, and I think what you see now is um, having uh, tried and succeeded in that tool, having found inelasticity that perhaps they didn't believe previously had existed, they're loath to just give it up. Um, and you've seen this, I know, but in the first quarter reports for most of these consumer goods folks, what you saw was some version of uh, revenue up 10%, price up 13, volume down three, you know, something, something like that. And, um, and that's what's keeping profits elevated. And so first of all, and obviously people don't want to just lower prices because that'll come straight out of the bottom line the same way going up. But to the extent they believe they have the power to do it, they're still pressing themselves to ask what more could we do um, without disproportionately affecting volume. And if you start to see volume falling off the table, that is a sign that you've gone uh, too far. But there's just more conviction, there's more courage, there's more will, there's more willingness to try at this point than you would have seen three years ago, four years ago, uh, 10 years ago. And, and I think that's it. until customers or maybe competitors, you know, force these uh, providers to back off, they'll keep, they'll keep pushing. And that's what I hear. Yeah. Thank you. So it's 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 always to get uh, it's always great to get um, context from the different um, Fed districts because it can be quite different across the the, the country. Um, you know, if if I think about staying on the the topic of inflation, um, if you think about sort of the uh, you know numbers that you marked down uh, for the March summary of economic projections, and here we are coming up to the the June meeting where you'll mm -hmm. be providing a new set of forecasts. If you were Turning in those numbers today, which you 
just about to, I presume, um, and you look at how the data has unfolded since March, does it feel to you or seem to you that the inflation data is unfolding sort of in line with where you thought you would be? Has it been running above, below? How would you think about that in relation to what you marked down in March? Well, that's a test because now you're making me try to remember what I marked down in March. But uh, I'll do, I mean, my philosophy on inflation has been, you know, uh, clear for some time now, which is it's going to be more stubborn than uh, many people would hope. Um, and again, I think a big part of that is that uh, businesses having had the experience now of finding this inelasticity are just going to back off uh, uh, slowly. And, um, you know, a good way to think about it is, uh, you know, we all know Volcker having done what he did in the early 80s. Um, inflation came down, I want to say, by the mid 80s to about 4%. It didn't come down to 2% for some time after that. Um, there's a, uh, a wide range of, uh, well, 20 years of 2% inflation really narrowed everybody's focus, every sector by sector by sector on two, uh, plus or minus. And I think this is just widening the aperture, and it's going to take time, real time, for people to narrow again uh, on our target. And so because of that, I just think it's going to take a while uh, for it to settle. So I'm, I'm sure my uh, estimate was one of the higher ones uh, three months ago, and you know I, I haven't backed off that. Yeah. So um, let me take you back to something you said at the, at the very beginning, because it is sort of headline worthy. And I know that, that policymakers understand that you know, folks are going to pick out minute details to make a good headline. And that is that you said that you believe that policy is in restrictive territory. Mm -hmm. Now, to dive into that a little bit further, is, it, is that, should that be taken as someone hearing, seeing that headline, right? Should that be taken as, therefore, there's nothing more to do? Should that be taken as, look, there's a degree of restrictive that needs to happen here. Um, and so don't make too much of the fact that we've moved into, that you believe we've moved into restrictive territory because there are degrees of restrictive. I mean, I'm just giving you a chance to sort of expand on that headline that we know is gonna get picked out from the very beginning of this conversation. Fair enough, I don't uh, really think of it as a headline. I think I first said we were in restrictive territory multiple months ago. Yeah. Um, uh, the question is, and it's a, um, it's a model question, it's a judgment question, which is how restrictive do you need to be for how long to get this bout of inflation back to our target? And I think that's a very hard question. And that's the one where I said, there's a lot of uncertainty about um, how far you need to go. That's how I think about it, which is, um, I do believe we're restrictive, whether it's against forward-looking rates or even uh, backward-looking rates of inflation at this point. Um, uh, but how restrictive do you need to be for how long to get inflation back? And I think that you're just gonna have to figure that out uh, as we go. Yeah. Uh, so let me take you to, um, back to the JOLTS data. You mentioned we get JOLTS data mm -hmm. and, and just take you into the labor market. Mm -hmm. um, you know, economists, policymakers have been pointing to the JOLTS data sort of the jobs opening uh, metrics uh, in terms of describing the degree to which the labor market is tight. Um, 
how do you see the state of the labor market today in terms of is slack creeping in? What does the jolts data tell you? What would you be looking for in this set of jolts data to tell you that slack is mm -hmm. coming into the labor market? So, so I see the labor market is having uh, three segments uh, broadly based. Um, uh, the most, uh, uh, the, 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 the segment that's shortest is skilled labor. Uh, construction, manufacturing, uh, truck drivers, nurses. Um, I was talking to a, a pet care, uh, 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 the veterinarian's assistants. And think of it as th this is a segment where we were short pre-COVID. Uh, for the most part, uh, demand for the services spiked, or maybe you had a bunch of retirees, which meant the imbalance increased. And the production mechanism of creating skilled trades just is not uh, growing at a pace. Uh, to meet demand. And those segments are short. Uh, they were short before COVID. They're even shorter today. Um, you know, there may or may not be a little bit of progress, but, um, you know, the costs and the demand for nurses, construction workers, is just, you know, out of the range of where we were before. That place is still red hot. Uh, the second thing, I'd, second segment I'd describe is um, entry-level, um, largely low-income service workers. And that's a segment that uh, obviously took a big hit during COVID and was slow to come back. And so there were a period of times where we were three or 4 million short in that segment. We're still, I would guess about 750,000 short in that segment of the population we had pre-COVID. You know, most of the bars and restaurants, most of the hotels have figured out a way to get along. Um, you know, it's the house cleaning every other day. It's closing on Saturdays and I'm sorry, on Sundays and Mondays. Um, but, uh, but we're still tight in that segment, but it's not nearly the desperation that we had uh, 18 months ago. In fact, it feels kind of uh, in balance. That said, you know, when somebody uh, loses a job, it's pretty easy to find a job. So there's still lots of postings, there's still lots of hiring. And, you know, you would have seen the last few jobs reports, a large part of the hiring is in that kind of segment, the leisure and hospitality. Yeah. The third segment... I'm sorry, third segment's the professionals. And, um, uh, you know, if you look at the job cuts, you know, Wall Street Journal publishes a log, for example, um, over the last three, six months, they've been massively disproportionately uh, professionals, people with a college degree, um, support and overhead, tech. Um, and that's not, you know, if you will, the, the, the workforce slowdown we're used to. We're used to thinking about uh, the, the displaced auto worker who can't find another job. We're used to thinking about the waiter and waitress. But today, I think what we're talking about, this is tech people, this is finance people, these are recruiters. Um, the good news is that population tends to run relatively low unemployment. 1.9%, I think, is the most recent number I saw. Um, uh, that group, by the way, doesn't file for unemployment at the same rate, um, in part because they repot relatively quickly, in part uh, maybe because of severance payments, in part uh, because they may go back to school. But, you know, it, it's a lower unemployment segment. It's a uh, lower displacement segment. And I think that's the place where it's really uh, opened up. Uh, most people, maybe uh, Morgan Stanley, too, have seen quits really drop, you know, in the professional class. I think that's because they're aware of this uh, downturn. I think that's happened faster than it has in some of these other groups as well. Sorry, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, well, no, I, I, um, I forgot we were still waiting for the third bucket. <laughs> so I jumped, I jumped the gun there. But that's definitely something, you know, that labor economists have been, uh, have seen is that churn, 
when churns started to uh, fall in the labor market because the economic environment beca was becoming less certain. Um, and so uh, folks weren't moving jobs as much um, at, the, at the very least. And, um, you know, so that brings me then to, to wages, because one of the things that churn was pushing up was that job switchers were getting the mm -hmm. higher rate of change in wages. And it seems like as job switchers have been slowing, wage growth has been slowing as well. But how, how do you think about wage growth in this context, uh, you know, coming down on sort of that age old argument of is it are higher wages or a faster pace of wage growth also contributing to inflation? And so would, would slower mm -hmm. wage growth give you confidence in your forecast for inflation to come down? Yeah, so, um, so as I'm out in these communities, I'm, I'm hearing a lot less noise on wages. And so, you know, most people have made their big adjustments uh, in the last 18 months, maybe even multiple big adjustments. By and large, they uh, imagine that's kind of behind them. That doesn't mean there will be no more wage adjustments. It means it'll look more like merit. They're highly attentive to realized inflation because if inflation comes in in a relatively calm way over the last half of the year, next year's merit pool might be more normal. But if it continues to be elevated, they might need to do more to help people catch up with inflation. So they're less focused on supply demand pressure. They're more focused on um, the level of inflation as they think about uh, wages. Um, it, it differs by segment. I think uh, certainly in some of the restaurants and the like um, where wages are a big part of your uh, cost base, if if they go up, you're forced to do something about prices. But I think for the great majority of the economy, prices drive wages more than I think wages are driving prices. And I think if if we realize if we continue to realize higher inflation, that will have an impact on wages. Um, now I'm you know I'm segmenting out lower end service where labor is a big part of the job, and you know uh, getting a haircut, for example, that's largely labor driving uh, prices. And so it, it goes both ways, but I'm still more in the prices drive wages camp. Yeah. So, um, you know, let me go back into something that of specifically what you're hearing from your your district as well. Um, are there are there fears around artificial intelligence? Do you get asked those kinds of questions a good deal when you're out in the in the community of hey, is my job safe? Will my job be replaced? Like, how are you thinking about? Or how are you responding to those questions of of AI and its effect on the labor market? Mm -hmm. So uh, AI is a big topic of conversation uh, now. Um, uh, employers are intrigued. Uh, those who've been short workers for the last couple of years or felt like they had to increase wages significantly and therefore, you know, threaten their margins are interested in what it can do uh, to, uh, uh, you know, augment automation and other labor-saving initiatives. Um, I haven't heard a, a ton of, uh, I'll call it employee angst about uh, AI. One of the uh, interesting marketing tools that AI has used is this chat GBT. And of course, it's made it available to people. So it's more fun and interesting to people than it is uh, threatening at this point. Um, but people do wanna, they do wanna talk about it. And, um, uh, and we'll see, I guess I, I'm still in the place that we've had lots of technologies that have been introduced over the last uh, you know, 100 years that are uh, potentially labor saving and we still have a labor force. So you know, I think just like robots uh, you know, take labor out of distribution centers, but somebody's gotta 
design and test the robots. I, I suspect it'll be the same kind of thing, but we'll see. Yeah. And then uh, what are you observing in terms of firms calling employees back to the office? You know, mm -hmm. how are you how are you thinking about the future of hybrid and remote work? Well, um, I guess the first thing I'd say is um, there's a segment of the workforce that this is not a big topic for. I'll put them aside. You know, they're in a warehouse or they're in a factory or they're serving dinner and this isn't an option. For the professionals, for the most part, who did get the opportunity to work remote um, over COVID, uh, I'd say uh, that somehow we're going to return to 100% back in the office uh, with no flexibility, I think is not very likely. Once you've proven flexibility, as we're proving today, you know it'll it'll happen. Uh, similarly, I think the notion of going 100% remote is not a very likely uh, option because um, that just makes any employee's uh, job competed against a global market of remote employees. So the world is sort of uh, moving to hybrid, um, and I think the question is just going to be what's the definition of that, and I compare it to the 90s when we first had casual Fridays and we used to have to send out memos that said, if you're gonna go casual Friday, ripped jeans are not okay, you can't wear a concert t-shirt, whatever version of that. And then today people have sort of figured out what casual Fridays mean. And I think we're gonna have an evolution of figuring out what working in a hybrid manner means in order to capture the benefits that most people think happen of collaboration, affiliation and mentorship and the like while also capturing the benefits that most people perceive of flexibility. And, and I think the market's gonna compete it out. Um, you know, your bank's gonna compete against another bank that has a different view. And you know, one will have a value proposition to certain employees and another will have a value proposition to different employees. And one will have a um, different real estate costs than another and somebody will win in the marketplace. And, and that's how these things go. Over time, you'll get, uh, you'll get toward a uh, I'll call it a center of that curve. And that'll be kind of what we assume works. I was saying this to somebody the other day. Um, I don't know how we have, you know, sort of centered on the five day in the office, nine to five model as the optimum model. But that came because a lot of firms were competing that out at some version and that's where they landed. Um, nobody thinks it was optimal though. I mean, you can't find anyone who actually thinks that was optimal, um, that every minute was used in the right way uh, on site, that we were perfectly productive. That just became the center of the distribution. And there'll be a new center of the distribution here, but it will be one that, you know, sort of delivers in the marketplace what people know they need in the marketplace and will deliver to talent what talent needs. And again, I think we're moving toward this hybrid thing, but there's still a lot of room around the definition. All right, so what I want to do here um, is we have um, questions in the in the Q&A box, um, and I'm just going to start to sort of weave them into our conversation. There are some that we've mm -hmm. already sort of naturally addressed, but I think I see a, a couple of different questions here that have popped up about housing services inflation. Uh, and um, I think the, the angle one of the questions is taking is that, uh, you know, we've seen uh, policymakers point to housing services inflation as one of the sticky parts of inflation. We've even seen uh, uh, folks like Chair Powell talk about, you know, excluding uh, 
taking core services and excluding housing from that to see mm -hmm. if there are other persistent pieces. I mean, how are you thinking about um, the importance of housing services and sort of the housing market overall in terms of that stickiness of, of inflation? Where do you think yeah. housing services inflation goes? So I'll start by saying that it's incredibly tempting in my job to try to pick apart the inflation data and sort of say, if you just didn't have this and this and this, then you'd be fine. Or, you know, this one's really working, so we're doing great. I don't think that's a really healthy way to think about inflation. I think inflation's inflation, core inflation's core inflation, uh, median or trim mean inflation is, and, and you just look at those and say, are we getting there or not? I think there's a lot of desire to restate housing services because we all know that um, uh, it is a lagging metric of what's actually happening you know, in the housing market and that real-time rents, for example, aren't being fully captured in that number. And so you could take that number and you could um, adjust it and that would end up with a somewhat lower number but still over our target. Um, and so I'm aware of that, but I'm also aware that you know, adjusting it assumes that the next seven or eight months are going to go exactly like the last seven or eight months. And even yesterday, I think or maybe it was this morning, we saw uh, a report that had housing prices up, you know, not down. My take in general is that there was a big uh, increase in uh, housing prices and in rents that was driven in large part by um, an increased role of housing in the priority basket of humans. Because when you're working at home and you're in your house all day, your house matters a lot more than when you're not there all day. And so people found housing projects or rooms they needed or offices they needed. And so it was just a big shift in demand. In the multifamily space, maybe you had two roommates that didn't work to, to work and have two roommates. So you decided to reprioritize your spend and go to one. It's a limited supply market, at least in the short term, uh, demand went up, so prices go up. And I think they're settling, but you know, I don't think we're in any kind of free fall in either rents or house prices, at least not at this point, that would suggest to me that there's some massive restatement we need to make on it. So I'm looking at goods which have come down in price growth, but nowhere near to where they, uh, the price growth was for the prior 20 years, which was largely negative. I'm looking at housing, which has gone up and will come down, but still looks elevated. I'm looking at you know, uh, services X housing, which you know, is this third grab bucket, which again is, is also high. And so however I look at it, it just looks like inflation is too high. Yeah, and so um, if I stay on, on real estate, not necessarily um, residential real estate, but, uh, you know, how, how would you size up sort of the commercial real estate mm -hmm. market in your district? Because that seems to be top of mind for the Fed. You know, it's not just such, it's not just large mortgage portfolios for regional and community banks, but those with large CRE portfolios mm -hmm. um, seem to be facing more troubled times with valuations. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you talked about hybrid work, obviously the office, you know, a lot of office space that's vacant and such, you know, how should we view the size of the CRE market in your, in your district? Well, so you have to take CRE and take it apart because, um, you know, data centers are doing fine and warehouse space is doing uh, well and institutional is actually doing very well. Um, you know, multifamily, uh, there's a mix, but existing multifamily seems like it's doing fine. People are struggling to uh, get new deals to pencil out. And then, 
when you take all these back, you're left with commercial office. And really what you're left with is B and C quality downtown commercial office. And that's where you hear the most noise. And I'd even say you hear the most of that noise in the biggest cities. So DC is the biggest city in my district. You hear a lot of uh, noise from developers there. And uh, part of it is uh, the world has shifted. We've just been talking about hybrid work. There's less usage of that space, which means tenants up for renegotiation or saying, maybe I don't need seven floors, I can get it done with five. And so you've got vacancies increasing. Uh, and part of it is uh, that the banks, you know, in the world, in the Titan credit world that I was talking about at the beginning, um, are looking at their marginal credits and taking a particular tight look at commercial real estate. That was true pre-Silicon Valley as well. And so you do hear it's very hard to get those refinanced. And a lot of them, you know, were financed at one level five years ago, but now are up for refinancing and the rates are higher. And so you've got lower revenues, you've got higher costs, and you've got a transaction market that's kind of shut down. And so that's where, you know, uh, B and C quality downtown office space, that's where I hear the most noise. The A quality, there's some of that noise, but, um, you know, A employers still want a destination where employees could come and you'll still hear some amount of, this is an exciting building where I can attract people to come in. The suburban office space is by and large doing okay. People, uh, living close, working remotely, needing an office, but not going all the way to downtown or seeing the costs. But it's it's the downtown and particularly the BNC space where I hear the most noise. So then when you're, um, regardless of whether you're looking at, um, you know, the willingness of a, of a bank to extend um, CRE loans or the demand for that, or just in the general, you know, loan space at, at all, um, where do you come down on, you know, is this um, a regular credit cycle, regular, whatever regular is, credit mm -hmm. cycle, is it a credit crunch? That's a really popular term that's thrown about. Is it uh, more so a lack of supply than a lack of demand? Is it both? I mean, how are you thinking about uh, the general loan market? Yeah, the only real segment where I hear that where it, where people in the market on both banking and uh, borrower sides will suggest that the market is shut down is this commercial real estate segment that I was just talking about, and particularly offices, new projects, you know, multifamily, those sorts of things. Uh, outside of it, you know, what I hear from the bankers is um, some version of, I just take a second look at marginal credits, or we're gonna service our current customers, but not be quite as aggressive with new customers, some version of that. and. Um, uh, and on the borrower side, and you can see this in the surveys, actually, that many of the banks do, there aren't that many new credits out there in any particular cycle. So there's not that much noise from the borrower side in terms of ability to find money if you need it. It's much more, um, I, again, except for these big deal makers who really are, you know, uh, challenged in this, in this environment. Uh, loan volume, if you look at the weekly report that comes out. Has, has held up pretty nicely, even in you know, places like CNI loans. Uh, banks will tell me their pipelines are still fine. So I, I, don't, I think this is a marginal, I, I wouldn't call it a crunch except perhaps in the office side. I think it's a, um, uh, rates are going up, deposit prices, uh, deposit rates are also uh, going up. Uh, banks are thinking much more around margins. And I think as they're thinking about margins, they are on the margin you know, uh, uh, 
being tighter on the that I just said margin four times, but the margin alone. That's okay. You can use margin four times. <laughs> exactly. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, um, no, I think those are excellent, excellent points. It's excellent color from your, from your, your both from the national perspective and from your district in particular. And so, um, again, sticking with your your district, um, you know, Richmond is a is a. Uh, you know, when you think of energy, energy infrastructure, you know, you've, you're, you're, it's heavy in your district, right? And so probably another thing that comes up for you is, uh, you know, the um, uh, supply chain disruptions and the crude oil and natural gas price shocks during COVID. And then, um, you know, when we think about future supply shocks that could come from the transition to renewable energy, and mm -hmm. EVs in particular, I mean, you must also be having conversations around that in your district at all. Do you have any color to provide there? Um, not a ton. I'll, I'll say that um, the experience that Germany has had during this Ukrainian situation has opened a lot of people's eyes to the question, not just of uh, the right end game for energy, but the right transition to that end game that you know, maintains energy security. And so there's a lot more conversation about energy security than there was uh, before the Ukraine thing. Um, certainly in West Virginia, uh, assuming the Mountain Valley pipeline uh, goes through as in the current draft of the debt ceiling thing, there will be a lot of enthusiasm for that because there's a lot of belief uh, in West Virginia that that's an important thing uh, to get done. Um, uh, and, you know, you definitely see the utilities in my district investing you know, significantly in the mix of uh, energies, including all the renewables. But I don't think that's a particular, um, I have anything additional to say. Yeah. Um, so you you said it, not me. You said the debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. You know what that means? We got a question. Then I'm going to get a question on it? Okay, great. <laughs> You're going to get a question on it. Um, and it's, and it, it's only because, um, look, I'm, I'm sure you're well used to this by now. Anytime there's an election cycle, anytime there's a, a bobble in Congress, anytime there's a debt ceiling, um, you know, there's always that question of what does it mean for monetary policy? Mm -hmm. um, how do you, as a policymaker, respond to these sort of risk events in terms of how you're thinking about monetary policy? I mean, um, because you get you get these questions all the time, right? And I get these questions all the time. How do you, how do you how do you deal with it? Do you build them into your forecast? Do you have some assumption of whether we resolve the debt ceiling impasse or not? Um, what do you tell people? Um, well, so any particular event, as you well know, it could happen. It could not happen. You know, you want to be aware of it. Uh, you want to have a policy path that uh, makes sense given that risk and uncertainty. But in the end. Uh, they're binary, they happen or they don't happen. Um, it's hard. It's also hard to make monetary policy in hurricane season because maybe the hurricane will hit or maybe the hurricane won't hit. Um, I, I think uh, what I've been interested in uh, lately is the impact of the debt ceiling conversation, not on whether the government will or won't default on its debt, which hopefully will be resolved this week, but on the mindsets of uh, Invest, business people and investors. And so I've done a lot of conversations just in the last couple of weeks on, you know, how forward leaning are you on investment? Um, and I, I think there is a lot of uncertainty, which is 
caused, of course, by rates and inflation, but also by um, uh, uh, people's perception on uh, polarization and regulation and a bunch of other things about how forward-leaning they are on investment. And I, th I think you are seeing that pullback on, I'll call it the aggressive uh, part of investment. How, how long that lasts for, how much of that's been influenced just by all the noise in the last couple of weeks is uh, something I'm gonna be studying over the next couple of months. But you know, I've, I've definitely heard a lot of concern about whether this was a climate in which you could invest. Um, and of course, if that is the case, that will have implications for CapEx and durable goods and um, a lot of other big parts that go into the demand equation and eventually into, into prices. So that is something I'm paying attention to. Yeah. Um, two more questions, if you'd be so kind. We've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, so that means that you, you can give five minute answers to each. <laughs> that's a long, I don't, that's a long I answer. don't know if I have five minutes in me, I'm talk, <laughs> but we'll see. But I, I promise you we'll keep it to just do more, two more questions. So um, uh, one is um, a more near term or possibly near term, one is a longer term. So the more near term is when you think about um, uh, a recession in the US, um, irrespective of timing, you know, there are business cycles for a reason, right? We know that there will probably be a recession at some point. Um, do you think uh, that because the Fed has been able to raise rates uh, 500 basis points, um, it, it does look like maybe rates will stay this high for some period of time. When you think about what you would expect sort of the shape of a downturn to, to look like, um, would you think the Fed would be back at the zero lower bound? Do you think that we've escaped the zero lower bound? Um. So uh, much to talk about in there. So maybe I will fill five minutes on that. The um, so uh, as you say, uh, no one you know canceled the business cycle. So you know we will have a recession at some point. We always do. Um, it does seem like for the most part, go back 40, 30, 40 years in the U.S. Most of our recessions aren't driven by the stuff we're talking about. They're driven by these one-time events, whether it have been you know nine eleven or maybe that was the dot com. Uh, bubble, uh, or you know, the financial crisis, or COVID, or um, uh, the SNL crisis. So I mean, it seems like the outside events drive it uh, more than um, more than anything else. Um, my hope uh, is that when this is all behind us, you know, we can have rates at a uh, neutral, normal level uh, for for a good time, and I think that would be healthy. For the economy, I don't think it's healthy for the economy to have rates at zero for forever. Um, you could argue that you know what we've seen in the last couple of years is evidence that um, you know we're not in the same stagnant environment that we seem to be in in the 2010s. There's been a lot more vibrancy of demand, for example, than one would have guessed uh, if if you if you you know moved back seven or eight years. Um, that still means that. In times of you know uh, huge need, you have a rate tool and you could reduce rates. And so, it wouldn't shock me at all if you know during a future recession you ended up deciding to take rates to zero because that's what was needed to stimulate demand. But my hope and expectation is, I'll call it the period from I don't know 2012 to 20 
18, 17, 2017, where we were largely at zero. I was on the board of the Atlanta Fed from 09 to 14, and we never increased rates during that time once. I would hope we wouldn't have those kind of periods because I'd hope there'd be enough inherent demand in the economy that that wouldn't be needed. Yeah, I think that uh, revisiting the zero lower bound in every downturn is something that folks much younger than us have only known. Yeah. Uh, so um, look, and lucky for you, my second question was really wrapped up in your answer. And that's just how to think about things structurally going forward. Um, so I'm going to give you seven minutes of your time back. Uh, yeah. We've done a beautiful job. I think we can pat ourselves on the back that we ran through the questions as well and incorporated them into our conversation and got through all of them. Um, I can't thank you enough for giving us your your time today. These webinars are really helpful for people, um, not just in the economics community, but, but broadly uh, uh, in the business community to be able to hear your views um, on not just the national economy, but in particular, we talked a lot about what's going on um, in the fifth district, in your district. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I uh, applaud you and the FOMC for the difficult job that you've been doing. I mean, we're sort of at a, at, a, at a turning point when the Fed decides to, uh, you know, uh, make a change in terms of how it's thinking about policy going forward or where you might be um, in the hiking cycle. It's just, it's not an easy job. And I appreciate the humility with which you're doing it um, because it's not an exact science. Um, and I think people, it would serve people well to, to recognize that more broadly. But again, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you, Alan. Great to be with you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with NEEB. We hope you'll join us for the 20th annual NEEB Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar, July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Economic Measurement Seminar provides a unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you've previously attended, we encourage you to come back for Track B sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing, wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. Early bird deadline is June 14th. Please visit naep.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.